0: You're listening to the Good Samaritan Anglican Church Podcast. The following sermon was recorded on November 10th, 2019. A reading from the Gospel of Luke. There came to Jesus some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be, for the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I want you to to think for a moment about what the deepest place of suffering in your life has been. What has been the the hardest thing for you to go through? Maybe it was a, a health crisis, maybe it was a financial crisis, but all of us experience things in our life that are hard, and in the Bible, in the Old Testament, we have a whole book that has a little bit to say, actually a lot to say, about suffering. And it's the book of Job. We read a little bit of it this morning. And we had the opportunity to study Job in detail, in extensive detail, in one of our Wednesday series recently. But Job, if you haven't studied the book, begins with suffering. It begins with Job, who is a very wealthy man, who had everything he could possibly want, who had a very profitable farming business, who had lots of servants, who had lots of children, who had a wife. He, had, he, was, he was the guy who everybody looked to and said, man, I, I wish I could be like Job. But one day, he receives word That his children were having a party and the house they were in caved in on top of them and all of them are dead. And that for various reasons, all of his flocks of various kinds of cattle have all been decimated. And he's left with nothing. Just he and his wife and no more income, no more riches. It's a very different circumstance. And then shortly thereafter, Job has his health attacked, and so he ends up with sores all over his body, and he is sitting in a dung pile, scraping his open wounds with potsherds. That sounds like a picture of joy, doesn't it? Kind of gross, actually. Um, And then Job's friends come, and they try to comfort him, and they, they do really well at first. They sit next to him in silence for a whole week and say nothing. And that's what they should have kept doing because the words that start coming out of their mouth start being words really of of accusation. They start blaming Job for his own suffering. They say, well, you must have sinned in some significant way for the Lord to be punishing you in this way. And so we have rounds and rounds of Job and his friends going back and forth. Job's friends insisting that he must have sinned and Job saying... I'm not a perfect man, but I didn't sin in a way that, that deserved the kind of suffering that I'm experiencing right now. And then we, finally, we get to this very interesting chapter in chapter 19 that we read today, where Job has this moment of prophetic clarity. He's been suffering beyond imagination. His friends are of no help to him in trying to help him reason about what this suffering means. And after going back and forth for many chapters, Job says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold And not another. Or as it says in the Book of Common Prayer in the burial liturgy, who is my friend and not a stranger. Job had felt like God was very distant from him, very far off. He was struggling to see God in the midst of his suffering. He was struggling to even believe that God was hearing the words of his cries as they went out to him. Maybe God uh, got the, the picture wrong. If Job could just have a moment in front of God to explain his situation, surely God would realize his mistake and restore what had been taken from him. But in this moment of clarity, Job realizes that even if he doesn't get to see God face to face now, that he knows that there's a redeemer who will argue his case for him. And he knows that one day he will stand before God Face to face, just like you and I see each other face to face. And he will have the resolution he was looking for. Whether he gets it in this life or not, now doesn't even matter because he knows that his Redeemer lives and he knows what's coming. Job, of course, had no knowledge of Jesus as Christ. But that's exactly what we see in Jesus because Jesus takes that separation away from us. The separation between us and God that comes because of our sin, truly none of us is righteous to stand before God. But because Jesus died for us, we can stand before God and Jesus argues our case for us, not because of our righteousness, but because of his righteousness which he gives to us. And Job realizes that his suffering will come to an end, and one day in his flesh he shall see God. That there will be a time when he's resurrected, and that he will stand before God, and that relationship which seems so distant now will be so close then. I'll behold him face to face. Whatever our present circumstances in life may be, We know that our Redeemer lives and that one day we too shall see God face to face. And so we can trust that the sufferings of this present time will one day melt away because resurrection transcends suffering. And so we have hope as Christians. We have a hope that the world does not have because we know that we have a God who loves us and that one day we get to be with him forever. When we shift gears and look at the Gospel of Luke today, we also see a passage about resurrection. But here, the emphasis is a little bit different. Here we see Jesus in a debate with the Sadducees. And we get confused sometimes between the Sadducees and the Pharisees and these other groups of people, the Herodians. Um, These were all different, you could think of them kind of like political parties in Jesus' day. They were all uh, theological special interest groups. And most of them had political connections uh, in the the Judean world at the time. And so the Pharisees had one movement and the Sadducees had another. And the Herodians were close to Herod, who was kind of colluding with uh, with the Roman government. How do we tell them all apart? Well, in the Gospel today, it says very clearly that the Sadducees were those who deny that there is a resurrection. And if you have trouble remembering that, you can, I'm sure you've heard this before, but you can remember that the Sadducees are sad, you see, because there is no resurrection, according to them. And truly, that's that's how it is. Because without a hope of resurrection, we would be sad. Because what we have in this life is all that there is. Whether that's suffering or joy, what you get is what you get. And then it's all gone, because we're all going to die someday. But, We know, as Jesus knows, the Pharisees didn't know, but we know that there is a resurrection, that there is a hope that's coming. And so uh, the Sadducees, just like the Pharisees, enjoyed getting into intellectual battles with Jesus. They liked to debate with him to try and catch him in a corner. And this was part of the rabbinic tradition, too. There was a lot of debating back and forth that went on between rabbis in that day, trying to solve the various problems and uh, and answer the, the big questions. And so the the Sadducees come to Jesus with this intellectual problem. We don't think this is a a real circumstance. They're just coming up with a theoretical circumstance to try and prove their point that there can't be a resurrection. How ridiculous would resurrection be if this were the case, they say. So here's the situation. In the book of Deuteronomy, in the law of Moses, there is a verse in chapter 25, verse five that says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the purpose of this was really for the protection of that woman. A widow who died childless was in a pretty precarious circumstance in her day. Someone might not want to marry her because she had been married already. And she had no children who would grow up and take care of her because children in that day were your retirement plan. Um, So if you have no children to take care of you and no husband to take care of you and no hope of getting married, a woman in Jesus' day was in a very difficult circumstance. She had very, very small ways that she could make an income for herself and survival would be very difficult for her. And so this law is given for the protection of that widow. Now, fast forward to the Sadducees debating with Jesus, they say, so there's this man and he has a wife and he dies and there's no child and so the woman becomes the second brother's wife and then the third and the fourth all the way down to the seventh brother the last brother in the family and finally he dies and then the woman dies now if there's a resurrection, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Ha, I gotcha, ha That's what they're trying to say. And Jesus basically says, well, you you have the question wrong. You have the question wrong. There is a resurrection. And he proves that quite well. But he surprises them with an answer no one was was expecting. He says that there won't even be marriage in heaven. I remember uh, being engaged. I was in seminary at the time and wrestling with this verse because I was engaged, I was about to get married, I was very happy about getting married, I was very much looking forward to spending the rest of my life with Carrie and it caused me trouble to think that one day one of us would die and then our marriage would be over and that it wouldn't exist in some form in the next life. I didn't really like that. It didn't sit well with me. Maybe it doesn't sit well with you as you're thinking about it this morning for those of you who are married right now. But remember, in our wedding vows it says, until we are parted by death, there is a natural end to every marriage. It doesn't necessarily seem like a a fun thing to think that someday we won't be united with our spouse any longer. But here's the thing I want you to hear from what Jesus is saying. Resurrection doesn't just transcend suffering, as it did in the case of Job, but resurrection also transcends the greatest of joys in this life the things that make you happiest in this life are but a shadow compared to the things that are to come so think for a moment if you had been given a book about the grand canyon one of those nice coffee table books with beautiful pictures and amazing descriptions of the things that you would see in the Grand Canyon if you went there. But you had never been to the Grand Canyon yourself. And so you look at this book and you treasure this book and you have this book for years and and it sits on your coffee table and you, you open it up maybe even every day and you look through its pages and you think about how beautiful these photographs are. And then one day you get the opportunity to go to the Grand Canyon and you say, well, I'm not sure I wanna go. Because if I went there, it might ruin my experience of my coffee table book. Would any of us actually do that? No, we'd jump at the chance to go see the real thing, right? Well, the marriage that we have in this life is a coffee table book that points to something bigger, it's a sign of something greater. Marriage is a wonderful and beautiful thing, full of some struggles, yes, but also full of great joys. But marriage points to the greater reality of the love of Christ for his church. And the book of Revelation points to a final consummation of that, where Christ and his church are married and there's a great wedding feast in heaven. And there will, no need be, there will be no need for the sign that points to it any longer because the real thing is, will have come. Now, will we recognize one another in the next life? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope that Carrie and I will get to see each other and we'll get to see all of the kids that God has produced through our marriage. And I hope we'll all be there together, worshiping around the throne of God. But that relationship that we've had in this life will pair in comparison to what we talked about last week. All of us, a great multitude, around the throne of God, worshiping the Lamb. Who is seated on the throne? It's amazing what's coming. In Thessalonians today, Paul says, Two fourteen. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may... That's not the right verse. It was earlier. I'm sorry. I wrote down the wrong verse. 2.14. There we go. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. To this... He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That we who were far from God are united to God. But more than that, that we will be glorified to be like Christ. Can you even imagine what that would be like? That we'd be glorified to be like Christ. Christ. And so that's the the hope that we're all attaining to as we walk through this life in faith of God. We know that there is hope of a resurrection and that in that resurrection, our very bodies will be changed, that we will be given new resurrection bodies. Jesus himself is the first fruits of this. We saw after his resurrection that his body was a little bit different than those of his disciples. He was able to appear in a room that had a locked door. And yet he was able to eat fish. He had a physicality to his body. He could be touched. And yet he could appear here and there and other places. And then he ascends into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. We too will have new resurrection bodies, much better than the bodies that we have right now. And we will have the glory of Christ when we get there. So with all this talk and thought about resurrection, I think it's important that we address one of the the important questions in our own day, which is, why not just go and be with the Lord right now? The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently released a report that's the closest thing we have to the quantification of despair, says the Washington Post. Between 1999 and 2017, suicide rates in the United States rose to their highest level since World War II, and the increase can be found among both men and women, and in every racial and ethnic group. But the spike among people between the ages of 15 and 34 is particularly disturbing. And on this Veterans Day weekend, I'd be remiss not to mention the fact that the suicide rate among veterans is even higher than that of the normal population. What's going on? What is so bad about this life that people are taking their lives to transcend the suffering that they're experiencing? If we go one more verse, we see Paul's own reaction, not to suicide, but to resurrection. He says, To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Paul doesn't say the glory of Christ in you is coming, so go ahead and go there. He says the glory of Christ is coming, so stand firm and hold to the traditions that we've taught you. There's work to do right now, he says. This is our response to the knowledge of the resurrection. It stirs us on to live out the Christian life right now, to stand firm in our faith right now, so that we may obtain then the glory of Christ. In our catechism, question 148 asks, how should you live in light of this promise of unending life? And the answer is, I should live in joyful expectation of the fullness of my transformation, soul and body, into the likeness of Christ as a part of the renewal of the whole creation. In the midst of life's difficulty and suffering, and in the face of hostility and persecution for my faith, I am sustained by this hope and the knowledge of our triune God's eternal love for me. In this life, we have hope. We are to remain faithful until the lord calls us to himself but it's his decision to call us to himself it's not ours to make but we can also recognize that there's meaning in our suffering suffering is never fruitless and it's never hopeless when we suffer And when we continue to trust in God, it gives us an opportunity to rely on God for the strength to make it through. God teaches us through suffering how to rely on him more. And on the other side of suffering, we will find that our faith is stronger because of the suffering that we went through and because of the sustenance that God gave us in the midst of it. But beyond that, it also gives us an opportunity to identify with the suffering of Christ himself. Paul, over and over, says, I rejoice in my suffering. I rejoice in my persecution. I rejoice that I am counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. The New Testament doesn't paint suffering as a bad thing, it actually paints suffering as a good thing. Not that we're all you know, signing up for some more suffering, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not going to put my name on that sign-up list, but when suffering does come, we should view it as an opportunity an opportunity to draw closer to God and to draw closer to Christ himself in his suffering because he suffered on the cross for us. There's also work yet for us to do. There are people who rely on you. But even more important than that, you are the image of God in this world. There are people whom God has uniquely positioned you to reach both by your words and by your example. And there are people who may not make it safely home to God without your influence in their lives. God has put each one of you on this earth for a reason and for a purpose. He has a purpose for you each and every day of your life. And so we need to keep our ears open to listen for the work that he has for us to do. That we might walk in the good works that he's laid out before us. And finally, we need to remember, as Jesus said today, that he is not the God of the living, but of the dead. This is the ultimate argument he makes to the Sadducees. Not so much that there won't be marriage in heaven. That's sort of a a stepping stone to get to his, his main point. But his main point has to do with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he reminds the Sadducees that when God is speaking to Moses out of the burning bush, God calls out and says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Not I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am because God has always been and always will be, but his His relationship to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has not ended because of their death. He is still their God. And he is still our God. And Jesus' point is that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for we all live to him. Our very life in this world is meaningless unless it's being lived to him. And he wants us to live for him now. And so we all look forward to seeing God. In our flesh, face to face with new resurrection bodies, glorified in the image of Christ, reflecting his glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of life, we thank you for the joys of this life. We thank you for every marriage in this room right now. But we also thank you, Lord, for the sufferings of this life and for the ways that we can draw closer to you in our suffering. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to hold fast to the hope of resurrection. That you would remind us in our hard places of the good things that you have for us that you remind us in our hard places that you are walking beside us each and every step of the way. And we pray for those who even now are contemplating suicide. And we ask, Lord, that you would give them hope, not just in the life to come, but in this life right now. That you would show them how much you love them, how much you care for them, and how you sustain them. Give them strength, Lord and give us strength for the things that we face each day. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. This has been a production of Good Samaritan Anglican Church in Middleburg Florida. For more sermons, sermon notes, and information about our congregation, please visit www.goodsamaritananglican.org sermons. If this podcast has been helpful to you, please subscribe and leave us a review with your favorite podcast player. Thank you for listening. God bless you.